Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day, welcome along to episode 53 of the Howie Games. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. We love you for it. We really love you for it. Good news because it is grand final week in Australia, a weekend where in some ways dreams come true. Heroes are made and highlights are created by players. Highlights that'll be played evermore. We'll look back at them and remember the play, the defining moment. And sometimes, just sometimes, we will remember what was said and whether the commentary truly captured the essence of the moment. This week's guest, Ray Warren, always seems to say the right thing at the right time. 12 metres out in front. Thurston to choose from with Coote. He hits it. He's got it. He's got the field goal. He's got the premiership. He has gone from, as I said, a captain to a legend and probably rugby league immortality. What a legend. Both Jonathan Thurston and Ray Warren, it's got to be said. Ray is the voice of Rugby League, a man with a voice made for sports commentary. At the moment, the great man is probably holed up in his home office in Castle Hill, working away, studying to make his call of Sunday's NRL Grand Final on Channel 9 exceptional, as always. By the way, thanks to Channel 9 for letting Ray appear on the show. We really appreciate it. Ray, (laughs) Ray is a natural storyteller. He's a really generous fella. He's a man of the people, and don't the people love him for it. He enjoys a bet, a beer, his mates, his family, and sport, and telling some wonderful stories about any or all of the above topics. I'd never met Ray until he opened his door and welcomed me into his home with open arms to record this podcast. For me, personally, to sit with a legend of sports broadcasting, a legend, and hear about his ups and downs, what makes him tick, and his views on his profession was a wonderful hour and a half. So thank you, Ray. I am a huge, huge fan. If you're not, I reckon you soon will be. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Ray Warren, welcome to the Howie Games And more importantly, thank you so much for welcoming me into your beautiful house Well, it's, uh, it's quite a pleasure um, I've had... Um, I've had lots of people come through the house. Right. I, don't, I don't think anybody's ever described it as beautiful, but we think it's okay, yeah. Well, I, if I, if I've I, done more renos here than, <laughs> than you'd find on reality TV, actually. Everyone says that sometimes I should do this show on camera, and I'm like, no, no, it loses all the, the personal aspect of discussion. Yeah. But if I could show people around your office, which is just a an amazing series of photos looking back on some of the sports you've covered, and I guess for you just as importantly, the people you've covered them with, Geez, you've had a good run, Ray. You've yeah, had a I, good run. Yeah, I, I'm not losing. I'm not losing sight of that ever. Um, to be honest with you, I I dreamt of I dreamt of being a sports commentator from the age of about six. Uh, I dreamt of doing a Melbourne Cup, and I did three. And then they persuaded me that I should be calling rugby league, and and I've. Uh, called 90 origin matches and a lot of grand finals and and then they persuaded me to do swimming and I <laughs> had the pleasure of calling Perkins and Hackett and Thorpe and Susie O'Neill, those sort of people. So I've had a very good run, you know. The big fella, the big fella upstairs um, 
has really looked really looked after me, you know. I'm just looking at the levels of me and you on my little recording device, and unfortunately, as a a man not anywhere near in your league, I've got a high pitched squeaky voice when I commentate, and I don't like listening back to it. And I sit across from you, and your tones are nearly blowing up this machine. We we gifted with with that voice, right? Because it just cuts right through me. Yeah, well, it's a funny thing. You you talk about the voice being gifted. Um, I've got to tell you I there's a photo on the wall that you referred to yeah and that was me in the broadcasting box with Ken Howard my idol yep and John Tapp who was Ken's understudy and I was understudy to both of them but I dreamt of being Ken Howard uh, one day and um, when I came to Sydney at 17 with a tape uh, which went on to become a cassette, but I had reel-to-reel tape. Right. And I took it into 2GB and <laughs> Garth Carey gave me an interview. I mean, it was difficult to get an interview, but he gave me an interview. 17-year-old apprentice fitter from June E, you know. And I was totally out of my depth, but he let me... He gave me half an hour of his time and he said, why are you trying to sound like Ken Howard? I said, well... I thought you had to. I said, because he's the best and I want to be the best and I have modelled myself on sounding like Ken Howard. So then I got the shock of my life. He said, I don't want, a, I don't want an imitation Ken Howard. I want, something, I want something fresh and brand new. So he sent me away to, uh, to basically get rid of the Ken Howard voice mm-hmm. and then come back. And I never went back. But he took, he took uh, all the details of me that he needed and it was that interview, was that interview that six years later uh, got me a start in radio. But uh, you talk about the voice, uh, I, I've, I've had nobody help me with it. In fact, I've worked on changing it uh, so that I didn't sound like Ken Howard. Right. How many boys and girls, mums, dads come up to you on the street these days, Ray, and do their best Ray Warren impersonation. It must yeah. be constant. Lots, you know. Um, it's quite embarrassing when you get a bad one, you know. I mean, uh, there, there's some good ones and some bad ones, and the bad ones, they they make me shudder a bit, and I think to myself, my God, I hope I don't sound like that. But it's uh, it's flattering. yes. I can assure you that it wasn't flattering always, though. When I was in my first year of broadcasting, I, I was in a hotel having a drink after a football match with some of the players, and there were a couple of, of those players sitting over in the corner doing their best rabs. And I thought they were taking the piss out of me, you know. <laughs> so I went over and um, I challenged them. I said, listen, if you, if you want to take the mickey out of me, I said, that's fine, but... Do it to my face, will you, you know? And one of the blokes that I'm talking about, he finished up in jail for uh, grievous bodily harm or something. <laughs> Later on in life, I mean. <laughs> I've really been looking forward to chatting with you often. I know my guests, I've been lucky enough to work with them in some way, shape or form, but um, a man that has taught me a lot about TV, Steve Herson, who originally started with well, you I work, in radio. Put I worked with you. Steve, yeah. I worked with Steve um, at 2KY. And um, that was just an unbelievably funny time in my life, you know. Um, Steve Herson's one of my favourite people, yeah. 
and he just said, listen, just just have a chat with Ray and just chat about where he's from and what he's about because he, he's a, a, one of the rare people in television that's exactly the same on camera as he is off. And to me, that was a... A wonderful thing to say about someone. You spend a lot of time in this industry now. People push you to change in all sorts of directions. But Hurst, I was like, no, nah, what you see is what you get with Ray, which I think is a good a compliment as you get in this caper. Yeah, it is. It is because in many in many cases, um, I think there's a bit of plastic mm. around television, you know. I, I, I'm not going to go into personalities, but I, I, think, I think we can get carried away with our our egos uh, in this business, um, and I've got an ego, don't get me wrong, but I think, you, I think you've got to use it in the right direction, and I think some people have got inflated egos that haven't quite got the ability to match it, to be honest with you. But that's a lovely thing for Steve to say, you know. Um, I, I'm not going to try and return the compliment other than to say he was one of the the great labourers of, of of the radio industry, and I knew he would one day make the transition to television, and he'd be very, very good at whatever he does, you know. But uh, he produced a morning show um, nine to twelve on Two KY, which I was the host of, um, and I'd walk in at about five to nine. Mm. And I think he would like me to have been there like at five to seven. When he was there? When he was there. Yes. I'd walk in at five to nine, I'd take the newspaper into the toilet, <laughs> do my research by reading the paper, <laughs> and, um, and that was my preparation. And uh, I, don't think he liked, I don't think he liked that part of me at all, really. Where did this all start for you, Ray? Can you tell me about your mum and dad and your, your upbringing? You're from a very small yeah. town. I'm from a, a little town called Juni, which is uh, equidistant between Sydney and Melbourne. It's a, a railway town. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if you didn't work on the railway, then you didn't have a job. Um, and I started as an apprentice fitter when I was 14 and a half with my intermediate certificate. Um, Mum and Dad had started me at school a, a year earlier. I think I was only four. But I got um, swept away by sports commentary because they both liked having a little dabble on the horses. Right. They loved a little gamble, sixpence, threepence, a shilling. So what know. year were you born? I was born in 43. What type of house were you born into? Oh, well, I've got pictures which I haven't got on the wall, but I should have. Um, I was born in a little weatherboard home um, and, of course, we we had a fairly a fairly large family, but at the end of the day, we had no hot water. We had a a fuel oven that was always providing hot water on the uh, on the on the on the oven part of the or on the top deck of it. Um, there was an outside dunny. Uh, there was no rotary clothesline. Uh, you had clothes props that kept the clothes up. So fluttering to, in the breeze. You had to sneak out in the dunny at night time? Absolutely. Redback spiders under the seat. <laughs> um, my brother and I slept in the same room. Um, and I think there were 10,000 white ants in the house at one time. Uh, we, had that, we had the fumigation process there. Um, we didn't have a refrigerator. We had an ice chest. Um, we obviously had no TV because it wasn't in. Uh, what else? We lived in the kitchen. And that brings me back to Ken Howard. Uh, with Mum and Dad having the gamble, 
uh, of a Saturday. I emphasise that there was only racing on one day. And um, they'd have their bets and I'd listen to this man calling the races and I'd ride a broomstick around the kitchen table pretending to be him um, and I got swept away by him to the point that he, he became a fascination and then an obsession and, and that's where I got this desire to be him one day and I went pretty close you know uh, when I sit back and think about it I went pretty close to uh, to the to the level that he was at. My word. Yeah. Not, not, not in race calling, but probably I'd, I'd, have, to, I'd have to say... Uh, I'd have to say modestly uh, in, in rugby league, certainly, yeah. Steve was telling me and he said, I must read your book, The Voice, which I did, and uh, yeah, I found it's... it very entertaining. Um, it got some great stories in it. Yeah. Um, the funny part about it, most of them are true. Right. Well, yeah. well, I think we should try and bring a few of them to life today. I've got no doubt there. But one of my favourite stories is because you said from a very young age that this is something you wanted to do. Yeah. You started commentating in your own house with marbles, from what I can gather. I did. I did. Um, I, I was trying to work out in my own little mind, I mean, by now I'm seven or eight. You know, I, I, should, I should have told you. Yes. Dad let me have my first bet when I was six. <laughs> what was your dad's name? Joe. Good on you, Joe. When yeah. you were six, right? Yeah. Uh, six years of age and he let me have a bet in the AJC Derby of 1949, which proves I was six. <laughs> and I'm back to Maiden and Maidens are not supposed to win derbies. And uh, it won. How did you place a bet in 1949? Well, I'll tell you the truth. The SP bookmaker, that's the illegal bookmaker, because that's all there was. There was no TAB. They would come round to the house, knock on the front door and take mum and dad's bets <laughs> and mum and dad's money, and they'd come back on the Monday with whatever they had to get back. Why are they called SP? Starting price. Right, okay. Yeah, starting price bookmakers. In other words, you couldn't have a bet on the tote. There, there was no such thing provided to the, the public via the TAB. So if there was winnings, would he come back during the week and pay Yeah, out? he'd come back on the Monday. Right. Yeah, and uh, and um, he let me back Playboy uh, in, in 1949. And most people would go, shock horror, shock horror. Fancy a man letting his son have a bet when he was six. But I thank God he did because it led me down this path. Um, it also led me into a life of gambling. You know, I, I don't deny that I love a punt, uh, not on football but on the horses. Um, but anyway, about seven or eight, I, I had a big tin of marbles. How did Playboy go? He won. Yeah, he won a 20 to 1. 20 to 1. So I got 10 shillings. Do you recall listening? Absolutely, yeah. And what I, was that I, feeling like? Well, it was, it, to me, it was no big deal. But now I realise, looking back, the tobacco winner, it is a big deal. You <laughs> that know. was the hook that got you as a was the hook old. that, yeah, it got me. Uh, <laughs> God love Playboy. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I had a tin full of marbles because... As kids, we played a lot of marbles. And I kicked the tin one day, almost kicked the bucket, and the marbles went everywhere. And our house had, our house had a lot of valleys and it, had, it was a pretty rough house, let me tell you that, you know. And the marbles all rolled towards the side door, down, down a 
a piece of lino. And I thought, if I take out all the different coloured ones, I emphasise all the different coloured ones, I can roll these down that slope and I can call them as horses. And that's what I did. From the time I was about seven or eight, every afternoon after school, you'd find me rolling marbles down a slope and calling them as horses. <laughs> so that's how it started. And, and then, I, then I, as I got older, I'd climb a tree and I'd pretend I was Alan McGilvray calling the cricket. I'd get up a tree and pretend I was Frank Hyde or somebody, you know. I, I, I was doing it all by, by the time I was... 12 or 13, I, I thought I was an all-round sports broadcaster, but I, I really hadn't even got off the tarmac, to be honest What were you. your reports at school at that stage, Ray? What would they typically say? Ray is a... Very, very, uh, what's the word? Uh, talks too much, doesn't <laughs> listen enough, um, doesn't seem to be interested. And to be honest with you, I wasn't interested because I knew what I wanted to be. You know, it was no use teaching me how to be an accountant. It was no use asking me to be a doctor. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was the class dunce. It was just that I, I had no interest at all in being a fitter and turner. Was it a shared dream? Did you discuss it with your folks or your school teachers or it was something you kept to yourself? No, no, I kept it to myself, you know, and I, I, I thought I was, quite, I was quite natural. I thought this is what you do. When you want to be a sports commentator, when you want to be Ken Howard, this is what you do. And I did it every, every afternoon after school. <laughs> and, and then suddenly this dream, I realised it was a dream, but it started to become true. How? Well, because I got that phone call, as I told you, yep. after the interview with Garth Carey six years later. Six years later. Yeah. So what were you was, doing in life at that stage? Well, I was in the police force. You're a cop? I was a cop. What yeah. was that like? Where, where were you uh, stationed? I hated it. Did yeah, you? Yeah. I was in the police cadets for a few years and then I joined the ACT police force. I didn't like it very much. I mean, I hated the sight of blood. Um, I hated breaking news of, of death to a relative. Um, uh, they, they asked me to lock up a couple of SP bookmakers and I owed them both about 50 quid. <laughs> so I, I said... Do I have to? Do I have to lock them up? And the superintendent said yes. And uh, they put me on point duty. I caused a four-car head-on collision. Or directing the traffic. Absolutely, yeah. I directed, tra- I directed cars to hit each other. <laughs> what were you, uh, Constable Warren? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah Constable. I, I like the way you say that. Yeah, Constable Warren, yeah. And where did your famous nickname come from? Your grandchildren... Are walking out the door with your son? Um, um, because I, I feel I should call you Ray because we haven't met, but everyone seems to address you as Rabs or, rabbit okay. or Rabbits. No, that's fine. Where did I get Rabbit from? Yeah. Well, a, a warren yes. uh, is a, a cluster of Rabbit burrows, uh, if you like. It's, it's like a motel mm. uh, where Rabbits are in different rooms. And uh, So who coined it? Well, a warren, that's, that's what I mean. The warren is a rabbit warren. Yes. And so Ken Howard, one day, uh, when I first came to Sydney, he, he referred to me as rabbit because somebody had come into the box and called me rabbit. And he caught on to it and he, he started calling me rabbit. 
And the funny part about it, the, the local side here in Sydney, South Sydney, they're called the Rabbitohs, the rabbit. mm. and people thought I was, they thought I was a South Sydney supporter. <sighs> and um, I finished up on the team bus going to grand finals <laughs> and everything. But I, I, I love South Sydney, but it was, I was never a supporter. Is it, is it a nickname you like? Obviously, it's one that's stuck. You haven't got I much stuck. choice. I can't, I can't get rid of it. Right. And, and then it got, it got abbreviated to Rabbi. Right. And I didn't like that because I, I don't fancy myself as a rabbi. <laughs> you don't strike me as a rabbi, Ray. <laughs> and then it became Rabs. So that's where we are now. So you're a, you're a copper. Mm. Um, and then is it at that Actually, I, Not only was I a copper, I topped the squad. Uh, so I, I don't know how I did it, but this memory of mine, being able to remember, you know, horses and footballers, I think they call it a photographic memory. Mm. So studying law, it wasn't difficult for me to remember and to, to, uh, to get high marks in law, you've got to be able to remember the statutes and the legislation almost, almost word for word. Uh, and I'm not being egotistical, mm. but I, I was proud of the fact that I came out as ducks of the squad, but I, when they put me into uh, the practical side of it, I didn't like it at all. So you receive a phone call six years later when you're policing? Are you still in the police force at that stage? Yeah, yeah, and that's when I had to go to the superintendent and I said to him, I've been offered the chance to do in life what I always wanted to do. Uh, And he said, what's that? I said, I want to be a sports commentator. And I said, "I, I dream of one day being Ken Howard. And he said, who's Ken Howard? And I said, well, he's the the greatest race caller of all time. So he deliberated uh, for about five seconds and (laughs) he said, go with my blessing, you know. He said, said, I've watched you closely. He said, I don't think think this is your job really. He said, and and good luck. And and away I went, cross-country to Young. This is your first? First radio job to LF Young. How'd you get up there? You have to drive up there? Yeah, I drove. Right. Yeah. What are you rolling in at that stage? Uh, I think I had a Valiant. Okay. Yeah, I had an old Valiant and I left the wife uh, in Canberra. Uh, we'd had no kids by that stage and um, went to Young, called mainly the football on radio. Um, they had a famous old competition called the Mar Cup. Do you remember the very first... Yeah, Natural. I was at West Wyalong. A big, big event was Bar Medman versus West Wyalong at Bar Medman. Nerves? Oh, horrible. I <laughs> drank a bottle of My Lanta, I think, <laughs> uh, before the broadcast. And, and keep in mind, you're sitting, sitting at a card table on the sideline. Oh, so you're directly on the sidelines? Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. No broadcasting box. Right. Uh, that was the same as it was in Sydney. We, we used to sit on the sideline here in Sydney for a, a long, long time after I started. I used to sit next to Frank Hyde and Tiger Black and John O'Reilly from the ABC. So how, but, did, how, how would you study the players for this well, first that, that, game? Well, I was just going to tell you that. Uh, Bar Medman and West Wyalong are they're probably, a, I think, about two-and-a-half-hour drive uh, across, across gravel roads. So on the Tuesday night, because back in those days the players only trained Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I, I talk like that sometimes, Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> I, I love to, um, to be a bit lazy when I talk sometimes. But on Tuesday, I would drive across the gravel road, corrugations, God knows 
how many springs I mm. or, or shock absorbers in the I Valiant. Was, yeah. And I'd watch them train, Bar Edmund, on Tuesday, and then I drove to West Wyalong Wednesday, um, Thursday, and I'd watch them train, study the faces, and then I'd go and broadcast the match on either the Saturday or the Sunday. How do you reckon you went in that first game? I would have thought terrible, mm. yeah, but they kept paying me and it was the first time I'd ever been paid, to be honest, to, to broadcast any sport. What you would know? you got paid in your first gig? Oh, pretty much nothing, right. really. I lost, I lost at least 50% of the wage I was getting in the police force uh, to go into radio, yeah. Which is a, it's a, it's a decent risk as a young bloke that's married to give up half his wage. A lot of people, I'm sure, would have been saying, yeah. hey, Ray, what are you thinking here, mate? You're right, you know, uh, but, you know, that, that's why you surround yourself with good people um, and, and I'm not with that that first wife any longer, but she was a very good person, still is. Um, but she was ready to do whatever I wanted to do, you know. That, that, that was one of the, the downsides of, of, of my life, I, I, I think. You know, I, when I married her, I, I was a policeman and then I, I got into what I wanted to do, so suddenly the policeman became a sports commentator. Mm. And as a result, I was never home. More of Ray in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, one of the most popular athletes this country has ever produced, Craig Lowndes. Although, it's got to be said, racing decisions Craig has made along the way, most notably swapping from Holden to Ford, has made his life pretty difficult at times in the past, to the point where he was actually provided with a security guard. I believe that it was a very, on good authority, that it was a death threat on my head because I'd moved from Holden to Ford. Wow. So he was literally employed to look after me and, and keep an eye out if there was any psycho psychos that were going to put an eye for me or what were going to... I don't know how they were going to do it or what was going to happen. That's Craig Lowndes next week on the Howie Games. Back to Ray Warren. Before we move on too much from that, from that first game, was it everything, that first crack at it, Ray, was it everything that you dreamed of as a young bloke growing up? Did it hit you and you thought, yeah, I've done the right thing here, this is what oh, I was yeah. hoping it would be? <clears throat> yeah, I, I knew I knew straight away that uh, <laughs> I was going to love this. You know, this was going to be a hell of a ride. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you have to get used to people wanting wanting to know you and wanting your autograph and your photograph and all that sort of thing. You, you've got to get used to that and know how to handle that and, and keep your feet on the ground. And uh, that can be hard for anybody, but it, it, it was mighty, mighty difficult, I think. Um, when, you open, when you open a book and the first episode is the, the first episode of this dream that you've had, yeah. suddenly... Here's a dream starting to unfold. It, it, this is the dream I've had since I was six. Where did the dream continue from there? You started off calling the country rugby league. You got into horse racing calling. Yeah, that, that was the other thing. Not on radio, but the racetracks around that area, they wanted to employ me to call the, 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 the trots or the, or the gallops or the at, dogs. At the at, at track? The, yeah, on, they call them the on-course caller. Geez, you must have had some times being the on-course caller in your day. Uh, <laughs> most embarrassing thing that ever happened is they, uh, they'd they gone halfway in a mile race at Gosford yep. 
when I came up to the broadcast box, the chief steward said, where have you been? I said, I said, having a punt. He said, well, he said, they're gone halfway in a mile race, you fool. And uh, I, I stumbled around and I, I tapped the microphone, you know, I went like that. So I said, check, 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 check. <laughs> And I said, ladies and gentlemen, they're gone halfway here. I said, um, I'll try and call the race, but I don't know the colours. Um, and thank thankfully, the thing I backed, it was about three lengths in front of Grey Horse called Chippendale. Right. And uh, it it increased its winning it increased its winning margin. Let me tell you, and it made the race much more simple. It made it simpler for me to call, but. So, so you blame the fact you were in the betting ring having a punt on technical difficulties? Oh, there's no use hiding from that because, you know, I was a frequent visitor right. to the betting ring, you know. I was a frequent visitor to the betting ring and it was no use telling a lie. I mean, I walked up to the box and then the steward was waiting for me. He said, they've gone halfway in a mile race, you, <laughs> you fool, as I just said. And I said, geez, I'm sorry. He said, where have you been? I said, punting, punting. Where do you think I've been? Drinking, you know. <laughs> What's it, um, how do you go calling a race where you've got an interest, Ray, when you I, might have been in the betting ring? Yeah, I, I think I handled it okay, you know. Uh, th- there's a theory among some race callers that you can't bet and broadcast. I, I disagree with that because uh, some of the best callers, Bill Collins, Bert Bryant, uh, they, they, they bet pretty heavily, you know. And keep in mind, I was only a small punter and I, I was only a small-time broadcaster of, uh, of horse racing, apart from the fact that I got to call the Melbourne Cup three times. But I was, I was only a small punter, but it didn't worry me very much. I, I, if you bet above your means, you're, you're going to get into trouble no matter what you're trying to do, you know. Have you ever got into trouble on the punt or not? No, I wouldn't say I've ever... Well, that's that's... That's a blatant lie, really. I, <laughs> you have, I, well, you haven't, right? I, I, uh, I once or twice owed uh, owed the bookies a bit more than I had in my pocket, <laughs> and um, I had to make a couple of hasty decisions to uh, to work out how I was going to repay them. But that's a long story, and you don't need to know. It. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. What is the key? I've never called horse racing and I look at it and and I listen to the races and I think, wow, this bloke's on race 10 for the day. There might have been 10 horses, 12 horses. He's had to figure out 130, 140 colours for the day. Yeah. How do you do it? Well, horse racing is different than than greyhound racing, say, you know. Uh, Horse racing, it it pays to remember a set of colours and the colours belong to the owner. Mm. Now... You know, I see yellow with red striped sleeves and a red cap and I, I think of Kingston Town, you know. I see red and white stripes, uh, black sleeves, black cap and I think of Tullock. Because I remember, they're, they're implanted in my head. I, I will never forget some of the colours of, of the horses that I called. But um, with a greyhound, he draws box one, he's got the red. But the thing in race two, he's he's drawn box one, he's got the red. Yeah. So it doesn't pay to remember the names of a greyhound race any longer than when the last dog goes across the line. Right. So there's there's no reward in remembering names of greyhounds. You've got to get them in to your head, 
and then get them out. And with horses, as I just tried to explain, you know, the more you did, the better you remembered and mm. it became easier. You know, the horses could come out onto the track uh, when I was calling a lot of racing and I, I hardly even had to study them because I knew them. I just knew them, you know. Have you ever got it wrong? In, well, you must have. In the, in the amount of calls, and, and what do you do when all of a sudden you think, oh, hang on? No, I, I don't recall ever making a big blunder. Wow. I, I don't recall ever calling the wrong horse. Okay. Um, and that, that would be one of the most embarrassing things for a race caller yeah. is getting, getting the name of the winner wrong. Um, that's embarrassing. But you might, you might slip up in the run. But the worst thing you could do, keep in mind I'm talking about radio and not television, the worst thing you can do is basically apologise because no other bugger knows you've made a mistake. No. You know? So don't tell them. They, they can't even see them. Just push on. But it's different today with yeah. television. You'll get, you'll get people say, he's got the wrong horse, this bloke, you know. But even then, even today, there's not many people know the colours. They might, they might remember the colours of the one they've backed, but they don't know the 18 others, you know what I'm saying? Do you look back fondly on that time, Ray, where you were driving around? Would you used to stay in hotels out in the sticks? and like? No, I'd drive home. Right, yeah. you drive home after yeah, every carnival, yeah. every day. Yep. Jeez, you must have covered some Ks. I used to cover... Well, I'll give you an example. Um... I lost my job at Channel 10 when I was there Which we'll in 86 and for five years I was, out of, I was out of business really and I was, that's when I brought my race calling out of my kit bag and I would drive to Dubbo and call eight races and turn around and drive home that, that night. How so far a trip's that? That's about a four and a half hour drive. Yeah, Gee, so it's please. nine hours of driving. Then you've got to call eight races with probably 16 in each race uh, and you get, you get $200, $200, you know, so... Well, well, well before we get to... I channel- wasn't frightened to work, put it that way, you know. Before we get to Channel 10 and what happened there, what's it like, Ray, and had, I have a lot of athletes on this show and no-one gets to the top without setbacks. We'll get to Channel 10, but you got the chop from Channel 10 and everyone that works in this caper eventually will... How do you mentally then go back to driving nine hours to work for 200 bucks when you've been the man and all of a sudden you're back on the smaller stage? Well, because you've got to. Um, just because somebody takes the bike away from underneath you, it doesn't mean you've got to stop pedalling. <laughs> uh, and when you've got kids uh, and you've got a mortgage, um, you've just got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and get on with it. And never, ever forget, um, I love what I do. I, I loved actually standing behind the binoculars with the microphone in front of me. It didn't matter whether it was dogs, trots, horses, swimming, tennis or rugby league. I, I just... I once said, uh, when I was guest speaking somewhere, I said, I do this for nothing. And there was a big voice up the back of the auditorium. I didn't know he was there. It was Kerry Packer. <laughs> he said, well, if that's the case, why don't you give me back my money and we'll start again, you know. <laughs> so, Did you have much to do with No. I, I'll be honest clear? with you. I'll be honest with you. I, I was scared of him. Right. 
Fair enough. Yeah, I, I'd heard that many stories about him, and I, when I say that, they weren't bad stories, but I knew he, was, he, he could be a hard taskmaster. And I, if he came on, say, he came around the trucks, the OB trucks at the football, yep. I'd make sure I was on the other side of the truck. <laughs> there'd, be a, there'd be a couple of blokes hanging around him all the time, but I wouldn't. I'd be on the other side of the truck. I had little to do with him, and I, I, I had a, a fixation. I am a bit paranoid, but I had a fixation that he didn't like me. And it was funny, it was after he died that John Cornell, who I'm friends with, Strop, mm. he, he was a very close friend of Kerry Packer. And he said to me, no, he said he liked you. <laughs> he said he liked you a lot. And I thought, oh, my God, you know. Here I am hiding from the poor bugger and now he's dead and I, I can't do anything about it, you know. How would you end up at Channel 10, which is obviously the next step in your career? The great thing about this podcast, Ray, is just to chat so there doesn't have to be any specific order to it. You're calling the horses and then we've talked about you getting sacked from you're 10. Talking, but... You're talking about, yeah, I, I, it was 1973. Yep. <clears throat> um, a couple of us got an idea to... Uh, start a midweek competition. Rugby league? Rugby league, yeah. And they went to Kevin Humphreys with the idea and Kevin, he liked the idea. So they found a sponsor, Amco, and they started a thing called the Amco Cup. And that started in 74 and they asked me to be the commentator. I'd only been calling in Sydney uh, for about three years on radio. Mm-hmm. And um, Channel 10 didn't particularly like the idea of one of their own not getting the job. So there was a bit of toing and froing and pushing and shoving. And Kerry Buckeridge and myself, we, we sort of shared it. That's the best way to put it. We shared it. And then Kerry, he pulled out about six weeks into, into the first year, I think it was. He pulled out and I finished up on my own then. And I stayed there calling the Amco Cup for Channel 10 right through until we... Uh, well, right through until they said they don't need me anymore, and that was 86. And we'd started doing the Winfield Cup in about 81 as well. So I was doing Amco Cup Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I was doing Win- Winfield Cup, I think, on on Sundays. So I was doing a lot of football and... I thought I was going okay, but they were watching the ratings, obviously, uh, very closely, and Mossop, Rex, mm-hmm. he was rating big in the news uh, with the sports news on Channel 7, and they, they, they went after him as far as I can be. I, I, there, there's, a, there's a few um, uh, people around that will tell you another story, but... This is, the be- this is the one that I think is true. Um, they went after Rex and they got him, but he wanted all the football. He wanted all the football and that meant I had to go. And so I went. How'd they tell you? Well, it's a funny thing. A bloke, a bloke there called John Davies, he was my best mate. And uh, they made a decision at a board meeting that I was to go. And he rang me up. He said, can you come over? He said, I, I, need, to, I need to talk to you. I, I sort of, I quiver when I talk about it. Um, 
He said, sit down. He said, uh, we got the contract for the rugby league for another three years. I said, beauty. He said, well, he said, you won't be part of it. And he said, I asked to be the one that told you. So, I, you know, I hated him for about five minutes. But then I realised that, you know, he, he wanted to be the one that, that told me because we were good friends. So I, I admired him for that, you know. But end of the day, in 84, I'd pulled out of the Olympics. I was their, if you like, I was their head presenter. I was sort of the Bruce McAvaney of Channel 10. L.A.? Uh-uh. Yeah, you got it right. Biggest mistake I've ever made. Why'd you pull out? I was scared of flying. Really, really scared of flying. True story. Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely true, true, true. So you didn't want to fly from Sydney to LA? No. And How'd that go down <clears throat> as their main man? Not real good. <laughs> Not real good. I, You know, I'd done all the promotions and publicity and everything and there was a bloke worked there, I won't mention his name, he... He said, there's 32 sports and you've got to know everything about everything. And that frightened me. So on top of the fear of flying, keep in mind, I'd, I'd, never, I'd never done an Olympic Games, anything as big as that, you know, but... It's been put to me, it's a great way to ruin your career, the Olympics, because all of a sudden you're calling volleyball or diving or gymnastics, yeah. things that you have no real idea about. Yeah, well, I... I I understand that, but keep in mind, I was I was the head presenter. John Newcomb was one, um, and Charles Slade was the other. Uh, I was the head presenter, so it wasn't it wasn't that they said to me, "You're going to have to do the athletics or the volleyball." You have to tie the whole thing together. I mean, had they said to me, "You've, you've got to do the swimming," yeah, uh, that career of swimming commentary would have started much earlier for me but so did it just hit you in one bed one night that hang on i'm not going to be able to do this i yeah, can't just, get on the plane pretty much like that Gee, i just is. i just said i can't i can't wrestle with this any longer and i needed to give them some notice mm. you know so i i think i gave them about a month's notice is your fear because you think the plane will crash i i, I think it's more of a fear of fear of heights i okay. I, I, I often wake up and i fear i don't, don't fear i'm dreaming that i'm falling um, and it's a really scary feeling. But the funny part about when I do fly, and I, and I do fly these days, because I've I realised I realised that you have to fly if you want to be a sports commentator. Mm. But I always love to sit by a window. Then um, you can see the height that you're at. Yeah, and and I can look out the window and see if the engines are okay. You know. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to matter if they are. So if, I, if you're on 27A on my flight up today and I'm in 27B and I'm sitting beside you, am I looking at you thinking, oh, gee, this bloke's a bit edgy or no, I'm not even no, knowing? No, you wouldn't know. Right. No, you wouldn't know. I, uh, I contain myself pretty, pretty good. But I, I've got some, I've got some um, provisos about flying. I, I never catch a breakfast flight. I, I make sure I'm on a flight uh, no sooner than 12 noon. Why? Well, at least I can I can ask for a drink. I can have a, a Chardonnay. Um, I can have a Chardonnay without somebody thinking I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I got on a plane from New Zealand one morning at seven thirty, and a bloke a bloke ordered a, a glass of red. Right. Seven thirty in the morning with bacon and eggs. And believe it or not, he backed up four times for another glass. And it, by the time we got off in Sydney, he was, he was elephant's trunk, you know. <laughs> so I thought, well, you're an alcoholic. Uh, but at the end of the day, 
I couldn't fly before midday um, and I always request that they put me on the biggest plane they can find. Right, you like the big planes? Oh, absolutely. I don't, no, I don't like them, no, but uh, the bigger the plane, the better I am. Right. Yeah. And h- how do you... Um and we'll get to the, the guys that you've become a legendary team with. How do those guys, the, the, the Goulds and the Sterlings and these legends of the game, how do they go when you're flying? Do they make it easy for you or do they make it difficult for you? Oh, no, they, they're uh, typical pranksters. <laughs> I thought you know, that might be the they're case. They're typical, typical prank, prank, pranksters is a good word for them, really. Uh, they love to uh, G me up and, and actually on occasions... Uh, I would check with my secretary at Channel 9 and say, what flights are they on? And I'd get another flight so that I wasn't subject to their <laughs> prank. <laughs> and um, that was one little way of avoiding them. Besides that, I sitting next to Gus, uh, he just talks football, football and football. Right. And when I'm on an aircraft and you're talking to me, I can't hear you. I, I, I might might look as though I can hear you, but I'm not listening to you. Right. I'm just way out there. Hoping the plane's going to make it Absolutely, safely. yeah. I have tremendous admiration from you, obviously from listening to you over the years, Ray, but the fact that you've gone and done something at a lower level for six years mm. and keep punching away at it, a lot of blokes might have thought at that point, you know what, maybe I should go back and look at the law stuff I was doing or the police work or whatever I was doing. What, what kept you believing in that period of time? I think, I think my, my, my kids, actually. Uh, I've got, a, I got a, a son, Mark, he's 50, and Chris is 47. And it was about the same time when I lost my job that I, my wife and I separated. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then I, from memory, I think the kids, they kept saying to me, you'll be back one day, you know, you'll be back one day. And uh, suddenly in 19... Did you believe that yourself? No. No, I didn't believe it. And I, I think I got off the rails a bit, to tell you the truth. I was at the tab a lot. Um, I was driving to Dubbo and all that sort of stuff and I wasn't making much money, but I was probably... I might have even been drinking more than I should have been. Mm-hmm. The whole, the whole box and dice, you know. Um, but I kept, I kept punching. You know, I was doing Cessnock, Cessnock, and I was doing dogs. I was doing trots. I was doing a, a race here and a race there. And did you still have the love for it, even though you? Yeah, I still love getting behind the the microphone and and putting the binoculars up in the bracket and, and doing what I love doing. And then the phone rang in 91 and it was Ian Frickberg, uh, one of the greatest people I've ever met in television. His son's and followed him down that path. That's right, yeah. And Frick has said, how would you like to call footy again? And I said, oh, I just love it, mate. And he said, um, he said, well... I think he said Channel 10's gone upside down or, or Channel 7 or whatever. I've been there. I've yeah. been there with Channel 10. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I said, mate, he, he said, how long do you need to think about it? I said, I've already thought about it. I said, I'm, I'm with you, you know. So I started at Channel 9 in 92 and I've been there ever since. Um, and 
I, 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 I don't fly at the moment. I, I'll fly and do Origin, but I don't think I've ever said I'm not going because I've got to fly. I mean, I've uh, since I've been with Nine, this is my second time round I'm talking about. Yep. Forget about the Channel 10 thing where I pulled out of the LA Olympics because I didn't want to fly. It was when I joined Nine, swimming alone, I've done Barcelona, Montreal, London, Fukuoka, Yokohama, uh, across the ditch a lot of times. So, so I mean, I, I do fly, but, but uh, just right now, Channel 9, because I'm 75, uh, they, they don't make me fly unless I have to, like an Origin or one of those things. Yep. We'll get to the rugby league, but swimming is where a lot of non-rugby league fans, which is probably half the country... Um, no, we, we, we won a, a Logie for swimming and we got some fantastic ratings uh, out of swimming by putting them on in prime time. Extraordinary numbers. You and Nicole Livingston. Yeah, yeah. And, and Duncan Armstrong. Duncan Armstrong. Yeah. But, Ray, you called at a golden time in Australian swimming, the Hackett's oh. and the Thorpe's and the yeah. Susie O'Neill's and the Liesl Jones. Yeah, absolutely. Point nine. O'Neill's in front of it. The line coming at her. Hang on, Susie. Hang on, Susie. Five to go. You're going to do it, are you? Susie. Yes, yes, yes. She's done it. 205, 81. Her dream has been realised. I, I, I was only talking on the radio to Susie the other day and I said, I think I fell in love with you. <laughs> Um, and it came across. You, you talk about, do you, does your call get affected by your gambling? Yep. I, and I don't think it does. But um, with Susie, I, I was in love with Madame Butterfly and it, it all came through, you know. But it was a great thrill to be able to call all of those swimmers you just mentioned. Uh, and you got it right. It was a golden time. Nothing more, nothing less. And I don't think we'll ever see it again. Who was the swimmer when they were on the blocks that you were electric, the crowd was electric? When you'd wake up the start and think, right, we've got the semis this morning and then 7.30 we've got the finals tonight, who was the swimmer you were oh, like? Oh, Thorpe, you know. Right. Yeah, Thorpe. He, he was explosive. Uh, keep in mind, uh, I, I was around long enough uh, to see Phelps, the American, and he's the best swimmer I've ever seen because he was versatile. You know, he, he had all the strokes and um, the clock the clock doesn't tell any lies, you know. He, and the other thing that doesn't tell lies are the gold medals that he's won, you know, at, at what, four Olympics? 20. I was looking at the other day for some reason. <clears throat> I was showing my young bloke. He was asking me who's won the most medals. Yeah. And I said, oh, there's an American swimmer. It's 27, 28. I, I don't know off the top of my yeah. head. It's, it's a ridiculous number. When you think that LA Games you were talking about, when Carl Lewis won four, it was like four gold medals. Yeah. Spokes won seven times that. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah, it, it is. But, but he's obviously the best swimmer I've ever, ever called. Mm. Um, but at the time, he wasn't, he wasn't swimming at meetings that I was doing and okay. uh, my answer to your question would be Ian Thorpe yeah he was he was just unbelievable Grant Grant was um, he was the fastest 1500 metre swimmer but he was uh, Australia hadn't accepted the fact that somebody was better than Kieran no it was quite funny really 
Hackett, he, he, had, he had exceeded anything Kieran had done, but Australia didn't want to accept him as the king at, at, at a certain period of his life. I don't know whether that impacted on Grant, to be honest with you. Um, there's obviously been something impact on him, but mm. I don't know whether it, it impacted on him. The, the mere fact that he, he almost had to swim out of the pool um, to get recognition. But his times were... were he took... He, in Fukuoka in 2001, he took six seconds off Perkins' world record, mm. over 1,500. And if that doesn't tell you that he's... He's uh, surpassed the king, King Perkins. Then I don't know what he's got to do. As I said, he he's got to swim out of the pool into the car park. <laughs> yeah, for, for all the wonderful sports you've covered, I guess you will. You know, people call you the voice of rugby league, which must be, I would imagine, enormously humbling. Your ninetieth origin yeah. the other night and I was watching it specifically because we'd had a conversation and, I, and you said, oh, mate, I can't talk today. I've got my origin tomorrow. It's number 90. What is it like? So going into your 90th origin, do you still get nervous? Oh, yeah. And uh, You seem pretty like the other day so. when I rang you. I rang you on yeah. the wrong day. And you're like, mate, I can't talk today. I felt yeah. silly to ring you. You still Yeah, get- no, I, I, I'm actually getting worse. And I'll tell you why I'm getting worse is because... When you've built up a, a record that you're proud of, mm. um, got to be careful how I say this without sounding like I'm like I'm up myself. I, I don't mean to ever sound like that. But when you've built up a record that you're proud of, and I certainly can't improve on it, um, I'm now frightened of, of making a mistake that will will be the last memory that people have of me, you mm. know. I, I've worked with a couple of great commentators and they went too long where they were making mistakes but they didn't know they were making mistakes. And that's partially its senility, you know, and that's the thing that I fear most. I need a really good friend next to me and I think she's out in the kitchen now. Um, you are? Yeah. <laughs> Cher, Cher's been with me since about 1984. Uh, a, a Canterbury footballer introduced us. This is after I'd, I'd split up with my, my first wife, but um, I think you've snapped my train of thought now. Talking about someone to pull you up if you were ever getting yeah. to the point. Yeah, I think she's out in the kitchen, that's what I said, and I think she'd say, listen, nobody knows you better than me, and she she watches me getting ready to go and broadcast these days. And, and what does that entail? you getting ready to broadcast. So, say you were doing an Origin game on a Wednesday night. Yeah, what well, I'd start, I'd start on Monday. What are you starting? I start researching from the notes that are provided by, by David Middleton. And I would work laboriously Monday, Tuesday. I don't really want to be working on, on game day. So, you know, I, I probably would put 
a couple of days research into an origin so that when I when I say research I, I'm taking pieces of information out of what he provides and the more I write it down the better I remember it and is that where your confidence comes from knowing you're prepared yeah yeah if, I, if I'm not prepared I, I get really I get fluttery I get really fluttery I I tackled a match this year actually and I wasn't I was never ever going to do it. Right. And suddenly I was on the goal case and they asked me to do it. And um I knew I was a long way from my best, you know, because I hadn't I hadn't really researched it. So I wasn't confident. I hadn't seen either of the teams very much. In fact, one of them I hadn't seen for 5 years. Mm. But my nerves my nerves today are brought on by that that fear of making a mistake, uh, a large mistake. Um, and probably not knowing that I made it. But that then becomes the lasting memory of, uh, of the audience. It's the same with an athlete, isn't it? As soon as they get older, they're like, well, he played a poor game because he's old. He might have just had a poor game. You might have just made, yeah. made a simple mistake. What am I seeing if I walk into the Channel 9 commentary box five minutes before the broadcast and I see you? What are you up to? Are you a, a centre of calm? Or are you manic? No, 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 I'm not. No, I wouldn't say I'm ever manic. No, I... I'll be checking and double-checking with David Middleton. He most often sits next to me or sits in the box adjacent and I'll just be double-checking things um, that I've written down. Um, if, they come out, if they come out to warm up, I'll be concentrating on, on the players. You know, you know the game. Yes. Um, I'm checking who's got blonde hair, uh, who's got strapping on, um, Identical twins, because you can't see the numbers all the time. No, when I'm, they're running at you. I'm checking. I'm checking um, what brand of boots have they got on. Uh, things to differentiate, you know. To to. to I, I, I try not to leave any stones unturned. You know what I'm saying. I do. I do. Yeah. And to isolate your career is impossible. And I was having a look on YouTube last night, which is a wonderful resource, and just looking at some highlights and your voices, obviously, across them all, there's there's a certain, and I'm not a rugby league expert, being a Southern Stater, and that's my ignorance, there's a certain call that I heard and I was reading about where you described it as not a try as a miracle. Yeah. that That's the thing that, of the hour that I was watching last night, Ray, that's what stuck in my mind, where I thought, yeah. wow, he's just bloody nailed that. Trailing 12-10, Langer pushing it wide, Walters onward, Khan joins in, floats the pass for Renoff, Renoff down the touchline, beats one, gets it in field, Hancock gets it on, Queenslander coming back, Darren Smith for Langer, Langer gets it away, here's the big fella, gets the pass on, Coyne, Coyne goes for the corner and gets the try. Queensland, it's a miracle Oh, yeah! What about that one? Uh, that's not a try, that's a miracle! Uh, Queensland are in front now! It's a funny thing you say that. Um, it's a big call. It's a big call to, to label something a miracle. Yes. You know, I, I remember the try. It was Mark Coyne. Set it up for me. In 1994. Origin. And, yeah, and uh, Queensland are down as often they've been, yeah. in a decider. And uh, the ball goes through 11 sets of hands 
and it finishes with Mark Coyne, on the same side of the field that it started, it came across from the eastern side all the way across to my side, the western side, and then it travels back to the eastern side and 11 people handled the ball and eventually Mark Coyne, he plants the ball over the line and I said, you can imagine by now I'm on my highest octave, I yes. can't get any higher. And I said... Um, that's not a try, that's a miracle, you know, and there was a voice in the background let out a shriek and that was Paul Vorton. <laughs> he, he, he put in his own, his own crowd effects, you know, but <laughs> the, the, they were my words, that's not a try, that's a miracle. And then Billy Slater, he scored a great origin try in 2004 and, again, I put a label on it when I said... Billy Slater has just scored one of the most memorable origin tries ever, you know. And when you stop and think about it, you, it's, it's not like somebody sitting at a typewriter or a computer. You can go back and rub it out, nice. you know. When you do what we do, uh, you, can't, you can't take it back. It's gone. And it's on the news. So if, if you've you got the wrong label on the bloody thing, you know, you feel like a goose for the rest of your life. Well, when you're at the Qantas Club the next morning and you don't want to see it and yeah. all of a sudden the news pops up yeah. and there's your voice, yeah. it can be a horrible thing. Yeah. It can be a bloody horrible thing. <laughs> this is the hardest question I'll ask you to date, and I know it'll be hard for you. You've got one rugby league player playing for your life across all teams, origins, positions. Who's the best? Who's the one you say, yep, he's my man? Oh well, you're probably asking. You're probably asking me uh, who's the best I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and I'd say, I'd say Wally Lewis. Um, and the the reason I say that is because he was in the first Origin match in 1980, and he had a he had ten years of Origin football, and it's 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 the toughest brand of football in rugby league. When I say brand, there's Australia, there's Origin, there's club football. But he, I think, won eight Man of the Match awards hmm. in, a, in, a, in a decade and they called him the king and it was his kingdom hmm. and he reigned over that kingdom for a full decade. So you can, mention, you can mention a heap of other players, including one bloke that I work with at Channel 9, um, Andrew Johns, you know. Andrew dominated at Origin but only for a couple of years, you know. Brad Fittler, ditto. Lewis, uh, Lewis gets my vote, but I've got to tell you that I've been going, I've been going to the football and broadcasting for fifty-two years. Uh, and when I first came to Sydney, uh, my first call would have been seventy seventy-one. Bob Fulton, he was, he was a craftsman. He was just absolutely brilliant, you know. But then I've seen Arthur Beetson, Graham Langlands. I've seen, seen everyone. Uh, I've seen everyone. Ray Price, Michael Cronin, um, Billy Slater, Smith, Jonathan Slater. Thurston, Cameron Smith. So, how do I know how Wally would have gone against them? I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, Cameron, Cameron's played mid forties. He's played. I think he's played forty six Origins. And Wally only ever played 31. Mm. So if you use that as your yardstick, maybe I've chosen the wrong one. 
But I don't think I have. I don't think I have. I think I, I think Wally Lewis, yeah. Back to Rabs in a moment. By the way, thanks for all the great feedback at Mark Howard 03 on social media about last week's ep with the very, very entertaining and passionate Justin Langer. And I agree with so many of your messages that the Aussie cricket team is in great hands. Justin was just as shocked as the rest of us at the events that took place in South Africa. It was about three minutes to nine Perth time and Gracie wants to go to bed. And I said, oh, and I flicked the tally on because we'd been out somewhere. Anyway, just before the break, they had this replay and I, all I can see is this hand with the something which was obviously sandpaper and I recognised the hand because Cameron Baker's got really big hands and Cameron Baker's like literally like one of my sons. He's one of your boys. One of my boys. And I went to Gracie. I said, Gracie, pray that isn't Cameron. She goes, what do you mean? I said, just pray it's not Cameron. And then, of course, it all came out. And I, my, even if I saw it, we were in England a few weeks ago and they, they've done this documentary on it. And I was getting, I was like getting anxious watching it. My heart is pumping out of my mouth because I, I was hot. Well, it was sad. It was so, I was, I was angry. I was sad. I was sad for Cameron. I was sad for Australian cricket. I knew that there's going to have a big impact. That was Justin Langer last week on the Howie Games. And remember, we now have over 50 episodes in the back catalogue. If you could go back and check them out, download them, that'd be fantastic. Even better, do us a big, big favour and recommend the show to a few people you know. That'd be epic. Alrighty, in previous back series, to we have mentioned private Howie Games podcasts. If you have loved ones, friends, someone that has inspired you or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity, please send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. We'll try and organise for me to sit down and have a chat just like a normal episode. It's not for broadcast, but for a family memory. Alrighty, back to Ray. There's a few general questions I want to ask you about broadcasting, which is more for me because it's a bit of a treat for me to sit here and chat with you, Ray. How do you deal with criticism? I'm not thinking you're a social media man, but how do you deal with criticism? Because no matter how good you are, not everyone will love you. I don't handle it real good. Right. Uh, you know, I'm being, I'm being bluntly upfront with you. Uh, I, I don't handle it real good. Does it get uh, I, to you? It, it, yeah, it, it can get to me, but I, I, I would never go on the radio or, or, or the television and, and respond. I would never respond because, to me, I mm. think you, you're dignifying, you're dignifying somebody's opinion of you that is is, is incorrect. The only reason it gets to you is because it's incorrect, you know. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, it, it, criticism can can be very hurtful, and it it hurts me because I'm I'm confident that I'm a good person. In fact, somebody asked me the other day, "What's a Christian?" And I said, "Well, I said I think a Christian is a person who tries to be a very good person, and I try to be a good person. I I, I like to give a bit of time to everybody that wants to talk to me." particularly the older people, you know, because uh, the young kids don't know who I am. But I, I go to the bowling club and I'm, I'm free. My, my time is free with everybody. So that's part of my belief in life, just trying to be a good person. And then when you get criticised wrongly, it, it probably hurts more. The young callers that you would work with and the 
the young stars that you deal with, the James Bracies of the world that, that do a magnificent job, they're from a different generation. So at the end of their broadcast, and I've fallen into this trap, you, you come off air and you look at social media and it can be, it can be a harrowing place. Yeah, you're probably talking to the wrong bloke. Um, yeah. I, I, I have never, ever, never, ever... Uh, delved into social media. I've never read anybody else's. Somebody might say, "Oh, you got a bit of a bagging on social media," mm. but I, I, I don't know anything about it. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know anything about it. You're uh, not missing much, I don't think, Ray. Yeah, I don't think you're missing much. What do you, what's the key then to a successful broadcast in your eyes? A man that's covered so many sports over fifty odd years with absolute distinction. What do you reckon the key is? to making a good sports broadcast, a great sports broadcast, which you've been involved in many of? It's a very good question. I've, I've never really thought about it. Well, are you talking about personally or are you talking about the, the network presentation? No, from where you're sitting. You, you can only oh, control well, your... Yeah, well, I, I think, I think we've, we've dealt with it. You know, you've, you've got to research the, the subject uh, to, to give yourself a chance of maybe doing your best broadcast ever. Um, if you haven't researched it, then you can't do a, a, a you can't do a service to it. Um, you can't let complacency creep in. You've got to have people around you that um, are striving for what you're striving for. I mean, I'm always trying to get a hundred out of a hundred. Uh, ninety six, ninety seven. That's not good enough. Mm. And I don't want somebody with me that doesn't feel the same way. And, you know, there, there are some sports events that are more demanding and commanding, that they need you to be really up. They, want, they, they, need, they need me to be up there and I want that bloke next to me. I want them up. Um, and you've all got to be on the same page. Um, and then hopefully at the end of the day you'll come out of it and you'll say, I think I nailed it. And if I say that to myself quietly, I think I nailed it, uh, that, would have been a, that would have been a rare, a rare time in my life because I don't, I don't very often say, I think I nailed it tonight, you know. How do you go when you come off air and think, oh, I didn't nail it tonight? Well, I bash myself up, don't I? Do you? Yeah. What does that entail? Not not much. It's just I just I'll just bash myself up and I'll wake up through the night and think and why the bloody why did I call him why yeah. did I call him Tom when his name is George and mm. just simple things you know I mean things like I said to you earlier you know just because you called a horse wrong halfway through the race not at the finish um, you only highlight you you highlight your own mistake and if you had to shut up. Nobody would have known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You're your own worst critic. I, 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 there's one, one of my commentators who I love, uh, and he's very, very good. I mean, he made a mistake the other night, and he, after the commercial break, he came back and he corrected it. And I thought, why did you do that? I mean, by the time we'd gone into the commercial, they'd already forgotten about it. Mm. So... Well, where, where do you sit? Because the Channel 9 Rugby League commentary, the, the, the on-air chemistry you have with the guys you work with, 
it's not as big as the game, but it's a massive part of the game, which you to be enormously congratulated on all of you. The, the rapport you have on air, which as a listener is sometimes why you listen, you think, ah, it's not a very good game tonight, but I know I'm listening to these blokes and they'll entertain me. Where, where do you sit, Ray, on injecting your own personality and humour and life into a game of live sport? That's not hard to, to answer. You know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very good point you make or it's a very good question you ask because I'm uh, a bit of a stickler and I, 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 I probably bore people, I, I lecture people, I say to them, you know, for God's sake, don't forget the bottom line of television and radio is entertainment. It's about entertainment. Now, if the match is entertaining, well, we're, we're, we're good. Everything's fine. But if the match is awful, it's stop, it's start, it's penalty, more penalties, another penalty, uh, and, the, and the scoreboard says it's 40 to 6, mm. now we've got to find some entertainment. So that, that means that you can become a little bit jocular. Mm that you, 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 you look into your bag and you say, I've, I've got a, a bit of humour here. I, I, I mean, Gus, uh, Gus is a, a good example. He, he understands it pretty well. I mean, we, we were doing a match at Amy Park one day and Melbourne were giving somebody an absolute trouncing. And these bloody seagulls were forever swooping in on Amy and picking up a hot chip or whatever, you know, and... And he, he kept on about these bloody seagulls. He said, rabbits, rabbits. He said, why, why are they always converging on one end of the ground? I said, well, I said, that's probably where the chips are. I said, that's probably where the chips are. And so five minutes later, they'd be, they'd be back again. And he'd interrupt me again. He said, rabbits, those seagulls, they're back up at that northern end again. Why are they up at the northern end all the time? I said, probably they're throwing some more chips out there, you know. So what, what I'm saying is yeah. I, think, I think that's funny. Yes, as do I. I think that's humour. And the scoreboard says it's 50 to 6. Yeah. There's a time and place for everything. But, uh, but entertainment comes in various forms, you know, and I, I believe that a lot of people in our industry lose sight of the fact that our major purpose is to entertain. Mm. Uh, I, mean, I mean, covering covering some major disaster, don't get me wrong, it's not entertainment, but it, it's, got, it's got people spellbound, mm. you know. And not every football match is a spellbinding experience. So you've got to feed a couple of other little things into it, you know. You, you get that jack plug out there and it's got humour written on it, you know. <laughs> That's a great description. You, you've yeah. been so good with your time. I've only a couple more questions for you if I could indulge you for a couple more moments. You've covered so many things. If you could go out of your own sporting area of expertise and become an instant expert and call one sporting event on the planet that you haven't, you're stepping in as an expert. You've got all the background knowledge. You're not going to be exposed. What would it be? Oh, gee. I once... Uh, uh, this is not answering your question, but it's, it's, it's as good as I can do. Mm-hmm. I, I used to play tennis as a kid, and mm-hmm. it, it was my best sport. Um, 
I once was asked to do Davis Cup on radio by the late Brian White. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of Radio 2UE. And broadcasting Davis Cup, I think it was, on radio, I found exhilarating. Did you? And I thought to myself, I wonder will I ever get to do this again? And the answer to that is no, I never did. <laughs> right. But um, I'd probably love to be able to to do a Wimbledon or something like that because yeah. I, I think I understand tennis pretty well and I've only ever done it once uh, on radio, as I said. I, I worked with John Newcomb over a period of time on some other tennis, but that was... See, television tennis is, to me, it's boring because, you, as a commentator, they don't want you talking. No, you have to be quiet between points. Yeah. But on radio, forehand, yeah. backhand, slice. Yeah. See, on radio, you know, he's, he, he drop shot and the backhand slice, he goes down the line, oh, beautiful shot, you know. And he smashes it away for a winner and all that sort of stuff, you know. It was good. But television, it's 5-4. Yeah. We'll be go quiet. to a break. Be quiet. <laughs> I want to play you something, Ray. Frequent listeners to this show, which we're blessed to have a few these days, know that I have two children. A six-year-old and an eight-year-old both have nicknames. They're intrigued by your nickname. My six-year-old, his nickname, for whatever reason, is the Big Penguin. And my daughter's nickname is the Pickle. And I chat with him, which was last night before I jumped on the plane, and I explain a bit about it. And the person that's most engaged of the two of them asks a question. So you get a question from my eight-year-old daughter, the Pickle, right? who yeah. was quite intrigued listening to your voice. She, and she actually said to me, Dad, why don't you have a voice like that, guys? I, well, I can't do that, sweetie. But uh, this is the question that the pickle has for you, right? Hi, Mr Warren Pickle here. My dad says you're the guru, the voice of rugby league. My favourite commentator is my dad. <laughs> Who's your favourite commentator? <laughs> Who's your favourite, Ray? And I know this is going to be difficult for you because you've got a lot of relationships and friendships, but if you're listening to one commentator. One commentator. Mm. Gee. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Not a bad question from an eight-year-old. It's a great question. He put you on the spot yeah. more than I have. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've always enjoyed listening to, to Bruce uh, yep. and, and Dennis. You know, I... I've always enjoyed listening to them. Um, it's a good starting point. Racing, uh, well, I've already talked about Ken Howard a hundred times and I, I mentioned Bill Collins and, and Bert Bryant, but Pickle Pickle wouldn't know who they were. <laughs> she wouldn't. No, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm, a, great, I'm a, a great admirer of um, Bruce McAvaney and Dennis Cometti. Um, I think... I think they're, they're right up the top, yeah. Dennis was the very, very first episode of this podcast. Was he? Um, yeah, he yeah. was. He was, and he, he's a wonderful man. Yeah. And he yeah. has a voice on a similar level as you. I, I have one final question for you. Don't um, get me wrong, there's been some great some great commentators, you know. Uh, Alan McGilvray was... Uh, he was a wonderful cricket commentator. Um, Richie Benno was, was marvellous. Yes, he was. Uh, on cricket, you know. Uh, 
It's, it's a very hard question for me to answer because I'm looking around the room. Yeah. At, and you work with them all. I, I work with them all. I don't want to, I don't want to offend no. any of them. You, you know you've given me a good answer. I, I had one more question for you. I've got two now. When you said marvellous, um, I think you know you've made it in this country when um, the 12th man takes a piss out of you. Yeah. How good's that, that you've been immortalised by Billy Birmingham, Ray? Well, uh, funny thing, I'm, I'm good friends with Bill. Right. Um, I... I must tell you that um, when I first came to Sydney, I went to 2GB, yep. right? Uh, Garth Carey. I come way back, way back in this... In, this podcast. Oddest, in this podcast. The podcast, Ray. Yeah, way, way back in this podcast, I mentioned that Garth Carey gave me a chance to... Uh, he, he listened to my tape. And when I first came to Sydney from Young... I went to 2GB, and um, it was a, it was a great it was a great thrill for me to finally link up with the Ken Howards and the John Taps and and all those other people. So I I hesitate to sort of try and answer your question um, about Billy Birmingham and being on the Twelfth Man. Yeah, yeah, Bill, well, Billy. Um, Billy joined 2GB when it went mellow rock. <laughs> he's, v- he's very much, you know, he was always very much into music. Mellow rock? Yeah. Right. Billy, Billy was tied up in some group. I can't remember the, the group, but he, he, was, he was in our music department. Uh, he might have even been program manager. Was he? At 2GB. So he, he would have laid claim to knowing me since 1978. 1978, I reckon it was, when Billy and I first uh, probably passed in the corridor. <laughs> um, and then I, I, I got to work with him on a, sh- a show up here called Dead Set Legends. Just run forever. It went for 20 years before they rang me and said that they didn't, they didn't want me anymore. I got the same phone call after six years. Did you? Yeah, in Melbourne. Well, I beat you by 14 <laughs> we years. We've got that in common. Yeah. <laughs> what was your other question? Uh, my, my final question, Ray, was um, your book is called The Voice um, and I urge anyone with any interest in sport or broadcasting to read it because it's a really entertaining read. To be a young bloke rolling marbles down the hallway now to be synonymous with the sport that you love and lauded for it and recognised for it and loved for it, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel... A, a couple of words here. Humble, but very proud. Um, and I, I, I think of mum and dad. Uh, I think of the marbles. I think of dad letting me have that bet when I was six. Playboy. <laughs> yeah, playboy. <laughs> You've got a good memory. Um, but I, I wish I wish mum and dad were still here to to see the final result because um, I think they'd be equally proud. Um, but I, I, would hope, I would hope that I'm, I'm still humble uh, enough to not get, you know, not let, let it take over my ego. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I give thanks to God because he made it all possible for me and um, there hasn't been a lot of... Turbulence, 
there hasn't been a lot of turbulence uh, right through that 52-year period, apart from the time when Channel 10 uh, gave me the flick pass in 86. That's the only corrugation that, that I've had in the road, really. Yeah. Ray, just before I let you go, um, when I arrived, you were on the phone and I was awestruck by looking around your office and there's an introduction, I guess you were a guest speaker in the late 90s. A gentleman by the name of Lindsay Young has written something and it, and it was in a certificate um, and it, it's a perfect summation of the man that Steve Hurston described to me and the man that I've been lucky enough to chat for the last hour and 20 minutes. Would you mind, in your beautiful tones, reading what was said about you in this introduction? Would that be okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll read it. I'm, I'm happy to read it. Yeah. Um, I just hope nobody thinks that I'm, I'm being egotistical. No, I've asked you to do it. I want to make that... Yeah. It, it just struck me as like, wow, that's exactly the bloke that has been described. Yeah. Lindsay, Lindsay Young wrote this. He penned it in 1998. 20 years ago. So it, it's headed Ray Warren and it goes, the Lord gave us... A gift. There's something we do well. In all of us, it's different, and that is just as well. But every now and then, and just upon the chosen few, he bestows the rare ability to have an overview, <laughs> to say the things that should be said at the proper time, to keep it all in context, the vernacular refined. This man started calling horses on provincial tracks and did it without frantic voice. He did it quite relaxed out there in towns like Orange and Dubbo, if you please, the Riverina, all around the countryside he breezed. To Sydney in the big smoke, he did the racehorse calls. Eventually he found his niche, rugby league football. And through and up and down or two, his style, it never wavered. A thousand games, he's called the shots the finer points he savoured. He knows that there's a picture there, that people have two eyes, that pointing out the obvious is not what they require. <laughs> no, rather give the folks at home a feel for atmosphere, for field position, who looks tired, the zigs and the zags and the veers. Cutting through the bullshit, so to speak, no fancy spiel, so that the distant viewers can get a proper feel. Unbiased to the point that whenever your team plays, he's neither with you or against you, carefully choosing what he says. A talent these days recognised, it blossoms, overflows, and when the network sends its best, they make sure that he goes. Versatile and durable, he's for some time rode the crest of a sharp edge occupation he's endured, he is the best. So back from Kuala Lumpur, where he called the swimming teams, extolling winners, losers, the triumphs and broken dreams, off a plane in Brisbane and immediately on deck to call the league and keep that other pair of fools in check. <laughs> You'll most enjoy our guest today. He's no elitist type. He talks our language straight. He won't get caught up in all the hype. The doyen of the callers, a name to you not foreign. Please welcome then the man of velvet voice, Ray Rabbits Warren. Thank you. 
that he obviously um, he obviously must have been running some kind of a, a, a luncheon or dinner for a charity. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, there's things in there I, I don't I don't understand quite. And then there's a referral there uh, from Kuala Lumpur I did. I got off the plane and went straight and did a um, a football match. Yeah, I remember that, but that must have been the introduction. Here, let me guess speaking thing. Oh god. Ray's just going to put that back on the wall. You whack that on the wall. Yeah. Um, it might not mean much to you, but you made my day to, as someone that attempts poorly to do something in the same line of work as you, to sit down with you and hear some of these stories, mate. It's been a, it's been a real thrill for me, so I really appreciate it. Um, I know people love the episode, probably no more so than me. Thank you very much, Ray. I really appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been... It's been an eye-opener. I've, I've never done anything like this in my life before. Um, it's been a long press conference, hasn't it? <laughs> it has, but a bloody good one. Good <laughs> on you, Ray. You. Thank you, Mark. Thank Ta. you. Thank you so much to Ray Warren, a bloke in so many ways, just like your friendly neighbour over the back fence. Very, very talented neighbour, you'd have to say, though. And, Ray, I did manage to get an Uber out of the front of your place. No problems at all, mate. Yes, there are Ubers in Castle Hill, but I was touched by your offer of a lift back to the cab rank, and that is the type of man Ray Warren is. Thanks to MJ, who has been front and centre getting Series 4 up and running. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. Until next Thursday, with Craig Lowndes, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Should do it, horsey. Listener.